What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Pat, it's 2020. Yeah. It's a new year. Yeah. Do you reckon if we call Jason Furman, his attitude might have improved? Only one way to find out. Should we call him? Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Hello, Buffhead. Hey, Cockhead, what are you doing? <laughs> you woke me up, you bastard. Did, we're recording another ad and we thought we'd call you. Just to- <laughs> yeah, you fucking woke me up. You're lucky, all right? <laughs> oh, is that one of the reasons you don't like people calling you? Because you work nights? Yeah, that's like I, I, I try to stay awake until fucking midday, but no, people ring me at like three in the afternoon. Oh. Like as if they have lives. Hey, Jase, got any cool stuff for sale? Through EinswickDogQuip.com? Yeah, if uh, you get on the website and if you're a balanced trainer, certified balanced trainer, that's NDTF or Bartbell and Gold School, right. um, you can get up to $40 off HS products. I see. Is that because you're an ethical good guy and you're trying to outprice people just buying them without knowing what they're doing with them? Pretty much. There are other reasons, but mostly it's that. I'm a, I am an asshole as well. But <laughs> so if people wanted all this kind of dog training equipment... Uh, equipment. Yeah, equipment. Is that a chipmunk with that has equipment on? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is, is that my new name, Pat? Yeah, you're the, you're the equipment. <laughs> the equipment. Yeah. Where do they go to check out that? Best bet is einzweck.com. www.einzweck.com. All right. Happy New Year, Buffhead. Glenn, are you eating dog food? I'm not eating dog food. Okay. But people thought I was last time. This is why we're redoing this ad because last time we were doing it, we had people ringing up saying, I'm very confused. It sounds like you're eating dog food. What dog food did people think you were eating? They thought I was eating Bright Spites. Why would people think you were eating it? Well, because on our ad last time, I made a little rustle and you said, Glenn, what are you doing? (laughs) And I said, I'm enjoying some Bright Spites. Isn't it that... The Bright Spites are so healthy and nutritious for a dog that they're amazing to use in training because dogs love the flavor of them. They're actually very good for the dog. Hmm. And they're so delicious that you thought maybe you'd have a little nibble? Well, you could because it's been so well made. As you said, as you pointed out, Kylie Bright uses all the best products that you could possibly think of in her dog treats Mm -hmm. that you could possibly eat them. But they're not recommended for human consumption, but they are great for your dog. Okay. Where would I get these? Dog Squad Canine Services dot com dot au. Did you say Dog Squad Canine Services dot com dot au? I did, sir. Would I spell that canine or spell it out? Canine, as in C A N I N E, not K nine. Okay, so spell it out. Dog Squad Canine Services dot com dot au. Get yourself some Bright Bites. Use them to train your dog. Don't have a nibble yourself unless you really want to. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And all the way from Sweden, we have on Skype, Mr. Tobias Gustafsson. 
Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Tobias. That's absolutely fantastic that you've made time to join us. You're our first EU guest? Well, except for Bart, but yeah, our first Swede, that's for sure. First Swede, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I probably talked a lot about your podcast, so I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, well, thanks, mate. I really appreciate you making the time. I've been kind of a, a stalking, lurking fan of yours in the background for a long time. I watch a lot of your young work, the work you do with Puppy young puppies in mm. scent detection. And I've posted a few times in our discussion group when, you know, when you, you think you're pretty good at something and then you see someone do something that is just a light year ahead of what <laughs> you're capable of. And I feel a lot, I feel that way a lot when I watch your puppy videos, the way you have them searching so intently and so happily. And I've just been really super impressed and I don't know a lot about your history. And so I'm really actually super excited to find out. So thanks for making the time, but can we go back to the start and where how it did, all began. How did you get into training dogs? How did you end up at this point now? Well, first we have in, I don't know how it is in Australia, but we have some, from what I've understood, quite a unique organization in Sweden. Uh, it's kind of like uh, in, in Netherlands. We have a very old uh, working dog um, organization where people compete in obedience and tracking and we have our own protection work program and everything. And that organization is more than 100 years old. So uh, it's really rare to find anyone in Sweden who has, for example, a Malinois or a German Shepherd or whatever, who doesn't attend to courses in this organization. So you can say that the ordinary dog owner in Sweden, they are kind of organized. And it's, yeah, the average dog owner has quite a lot of knowledge, I, I must say. That doesn't mean that we have the best knowledge when it comes to more specific things, but the average dog owner, they attend to a lot of courses. Okay. And that's where I started also back in, in when I was, I bought, I have always had dogs in my family because they were also uh, in this working dog organization. So in every little village in Sweden, we have this club. So when you get the puppy, you go to, to the working dog club. And from the beginning, this organization was very close to the military. And so that's where I started. And then I bought my first own dog uh, when I was 11. And uh, since then, I've always had dogs and trained dogs. And my parents did too. Um, so, can, uh, can I ask you then, some questions yeah. about that organization? So mm, I'm yeah, really sure. unfamiliar with, I don't know Swedish, I don't know the working dog environment there at all. I know the KMPV a little bit, and that is a government-sponsored, like it is the Royal Dutch Police Dog Association, and uh, yeah. the rules are written, and, and, and the control is actually by the government. And I know that it was uh, basically a streamline to create having civilians train police dogs for them in the past. Yeah. Is it something similar in Sweden? In the, yeah, you, you, same idea. Right. Yeah. Same, or not police primarily, but military. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it has a close connection and they get some of the, fund, the funding from the government yeah, when it right. comes to rescue dogs and also some of the And is military. there a, like a PH1 type test? Is it something similar yeah. or? Yeah. So we have competitions in, in tracking, in, in bite work, in search and rescue and in obedience that is specific to this Swedish working dog organization. And like I said, it's more than 100, 100 years old. And we also have, we were pretty uh, early. We're starting with mentality tests and personality tests mm -hmm. also a long time ago. So in 1971, they started to uh, 
formalize this test into the working dog club also so everyone who who competes in in any of this protection or tracking or whatever to be part of that system in the working dog club you have to do this mentality test and that's the goal with that one is not to test every individual you know to tell much about that individual but to use that knowledge into the breeding programs Mm -hmm. so it's very organized perfect yeah so that's kind of like KMPV because it was the goal from the beginning to have civilians train dogs for that purpose. I think the Swedish mentality test is quite well known around the world. Like yeah. There's a lot of people who have tried to base their work off it or have followed intently the history of the mentality test. I think it's a good idea. Yeah, it's from what I, I know, it's uh, one of our colleagues, he actually Passed away a couple of weeks ago. One of our old colleagues in the institute. He he was uh, he's an ethology, was an ethologist and uh, started working at the governmental dog school many years ago. And he mm-hmm. was one of them who who started to or who actually created it, this test. Yeah. Uh, so it's an interesting history, but. I'm also one of the probably most famous uh, critics uh, when it comes to this. <laughs> but I, I'm proud of I'm proud of the of, of the history. Uh, you know, when, when it comes to the working dog tradition and the mentality tests and everything. But I'm also at the same time very critical to how it is. It hasn't changed very much right. since yeah. 1971. Yeah. Sorry to hear the passing of your colleague. Yeah, he was an old man, but he, he was still working with us until just recently so uh, and uh, with him a lot of the history of the working dog uh, organization in, in sweden and, and, and the military and police dog history followed him because he was uh, one of the pioneers in in this field what was his name lars felt oh yeah uh, i've seen him on your the, website yeah yeah exactly and he mm. he was one of the first ethologists actually in the world who actually started to study dogs because that was very unusual at that time. Now it's very popular, but at that time it was, uh, it was born 1938, so it was quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah. mate, I derailed you a little bit. We were talking about, so that's where you got your grounding. That's where you started as a kid. And- exactly. I was lucky enough to meet him when I was uh, quite young. So he, he took me under his wings and then we, we started to work together. And I was at that time, I had been training dogs a lot, but he made it possible for me to actually start to, to work with dogs. He saw something in me and he also inspired me to, to study biology. So uh, I, I tried to combine my biology studies with the practical dog training. So we are actually all, all of our, all of us in, in uh, the Scandinavian Working Dog Institute is, are uh, also biologists. Wow. Yeah. So uh, we are quite close connected to to the university. My colleague Jens is an assistant professor at the university and also a very good dog trainer. So we try to combine both worlds. Mm, That's pretty Uh, exciting. What's been the most interesting crossover from dog training to the biology world? Like what is it that you guys are doing that is new and no one else has adopted yet? I don't think we, we, well, actually what we, we do that comes natural for us because we are, kind of raised in, in, in this scientific uh, world and the traditions at the university to always be critical, always look at things from different uh, perspectives and always listen to other and always try to develop things instead of trying to defend your method. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that can be sometimes for students or participants uh, on courses quite frustrating, I think also because we change all the time and that's <laughs> our goal that if we you know find out a better way of doing things 
well, then I'm just stupid if I don't change it. Yeah. So uh, always hope that if I, or I used to tell the, the people at our courses that if they come to a course with us this year, and hopefully the next year if they come back, I will say completely different things. That's mm-hmm. the whole idea. Because if I didn't do that, then I have obviously not learned anything during that year. So, and I think that comes from, from uh, our backgrounds as biologists, and especially my colleague who is a scientist, and he's, that's his uh, part-time job now. He's working with those uh, 50% or, and uh, the training, and, and then he's at the university. So I think we what we have done is to, to actually try to be objective in, in everything and and uh, always be be open to to different ways of doing things and uh, yeah we don't try to defend a method and i think that's the main thing i mm-hmm. think that we managed to combine those two that's yeah. an interesting look at things and I, I appreciate what you're saying pat and i were just talking before we got to air about being too comfortable with things sometimes and i i guess Hearing you talking about that, it's a very hard thing for a lot of people to do. It's a very hard position to get yourself in initially. It's the best position to really be in because flexibility really means that you advance quite a lot in the way that you think and grow in your own field. Because once you start getting those cognitive biases or defending your position vehemently, you start thinking, I'm at the top of my field. I know everything. I can't really learn anymore. Mm. It's a very dangerous place to be. So, yeah, I totally appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, and it's not fun to train dogs if you if you don't constantly try to push the the limits or do some, something in a different way. 100%. And uh, I think that's uh, you can almost almost look at the the canine community as kind of pseudoscience almost. Mm-hmm. That uh, everything is built up through around a certain gurus' way of, of expressing their opinions mm-hmm. rather than actual facts and. Uh, that's something that we really try to stay far away from because it's I don't think it will develop the dog training at all if we continue to look at it in that way. Yeah. So um, and also, especially since there are so little research done, if you look at the scientific studies on dog training, it's nothing, mm-hmm. nothing at all. Mm. There's a lot of things on, on learning theory in general and, and all that. That's, you know, well studied. But when we look into the dog training specifically, it's nothing, nothing yeah. at all. And I think that I, means that no one can be completely sure of this is the best way of training a dog. Yeah. It's, it's not if you look at the scientific literature. I think as well, a lot of the scientific studies on dog training are not very well done for two reasons. I sometimes worry about the studies that are done because they're done by brain scientists, not by dog trainers. And so there's things about Mm -hmm. dogs that they'll do, you know, because a dog trainer would look at and in one moment say, oh, that's really a test of the dog's perseverance rather than intelligence or something Mm -hmm. like that, as well as Mm -hmm. some other tests are I find it done in order to, to, to prove a point. And, you, you know, yeah. with a selective look at the evidence, you can prove any point that you like, no matter what it is. You know, you can prove the sky is purple if, if you collect yeah. the right evidence sure. to do that and, and ignore the stuff that tells you the sky is blue. And there was a time where a lot of the experimentation on dogs was just done as a conduit because that was all that was accessible. They only had a dog to do it on. Mm. Yeah. And you can, you can also look at when, when, I, when my colleague uh, started to because he was already interested in dogs at that time and he was uh, you know the ethology is quite new field of within the biology is uh, animal behavior so he wanted to start to study dogs but 
it was impossible to to get any money for that because it was not farm animals and it was not wild animals mm-hmm. so it wasn't possible to get any funding for it so that became possible actually quite recently the studies on on or the the science uh, about dogs and dog training and cognition and, and personalities is quite new field. Mm-hmm. And it, you can almost set the date when it started with Brian Hare and when he wanted to study dogs uh, in another way than had, that has been done before. So uh, it's, you know, 15, 20 years. But what you can see now is that it's, well, it was really interesting in, in the beginning, but now it, it's... Uh, uh, there are new studies almost every month, but it's very, very little about dog training. It's a lot about personality and it's a lot about cognition. And it's a lot uh, of things that confirm things that we every dog owner knew already. Yeah. But how can we use this knowledge in the dog training, in the practical situation where you're standing there training your dog? That's it's not nothing at all, actually. Uh, I would say it's very little. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I really miss that part. And that was actually the, the goal when we started up in 2010 with the work to work together. We have worked with dogs before, a lot before, but we started to work together, the four of us. The goal was that we also should start up a research project within the university where we would focus on those things that could actually tell us something about how to train a dog. Yeah, that's what I was about to suggest. Not when are, when are you guys doing an experiment? Mm. All that. Uh, it's interesting, but it's very little that is actually useful. Yeah, you guys are sound to me like the perfect team to be doing that. You have the real dog training knowledge to get an effective test of different techniques, mm. as well as the capacity to see it through properly through the university, right? Mm, dog training scientists. Yeah. And that's still our goal. Uh, the problem is that we have so much work that uh-huh. we think is uh, at the moment more fun actually yeah. but we are we are involved in, in some projects but yeah that's the goal and at least we try to keep that way of looking at things also on our courses and, and in our own training especially when it comes to how to to plan your training and how to use progression plans and always measure the everything that can be measurable in, in dog training to actually see if you're getting somewhere or, mm-hmm. or if you're doing the same thing over and over again. So uh, it's very kind of technical, uh, I would say. And that's the way we try to combine our academic background with the practical dog training. Mm-hmm. Tobias, you talked about your love of science and your appreciation of it, but also what it's lacking at the moment. What are your thoughts around it's a bit more recent study, a bit more recent science that people are actually using MRI to study brain mapping of dogs. Where do you see that going? And do you think that's beneficial in our learning and understanding? I know you talked about the difference between understanding the brain and the behavior, but do you think that has a place in understanding dogs in the training world? I think what's more would be more interesting. Mm. And I hope that this is also what's happening. And that is to focus on personality Mm -hmm. more when it comes to differences in personalities between dogs, because we can we can see clearly that the differences between individuals within a breed is bigger sometimes than the differences between two individuals from different breeds. And mm-hmm. now we have had 15, 20 years of, of studying personality and how to measure it. And, and actually a lot of, of new knowledge have been uh, coming from that those studies. And now what I would like to see is how we can use the knowledge about personality when we choose the different uh, 
training methods. That would be a, an extremely interesting thing to actually do something about it and, and use it in some way, that knowledge that we now have. And uh, But like you said, that takes knowledge about dog training to be able to set up a, a, a study like that. But that would be really interesting because, like I said, the general uh, learning principles and operant conditioning and classical conditioning and social learning and everything, we know a lot about that. It's mm-hmm. actually nothing nothing new to to figure out there there are different ways of looking at it and different views depending on what kind of scientific field you're working within but it's definitions and it's words it's established everything and uh, yeah uh, and uh, but how how can you use the personality the the knowledge we have in personality if this training method for example would be more suitable for this kind of personality and Mm. that would be interesting i think that's that would be the next step in in uh, dog training. The stuff that has been done on that, we were talking to Cameron Ford a couple of weeks ago, and he you know does those cognition tests. I know you spent some time with him, right? You know him pretty well, and it sounds like you're doing the I same sort of thing. Him, uh, yeah. Right. So yeah, you, I haven't been able to the interview yet, but I, I've yeah I've met him. Yeah. So are you doing a similar sort of thing and using the stuff? It's from Duke University, is it? The doctor. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Are you implementing some of that into the dogs that you're training or do you have sort of at the moment? Uh, yeah, we do it in the training, but it, I haven't seen the actual test, but okay. I, I know uh, a lot about the, the studies that have been probably leading to these tests mm-hmm. and uh, what this is and that what we do we use in, in our training, of course, is to, to add this knowledge about social learning and cognitive uh, abilities in dogs and, and their unique some say that there is a unique uh, ability to read human signals and, and actually interpret them, but some say it's not a unique uh, okay. ability. So it's still different ways of looking at that too. Like I said, you have to be open you know, to every, that's the whole idea with science, mm-hmm. to come up with a new idea and, and, and uh, be open to other people's opinions about it. So of course we are using the basic knowledge about that, you know, that dogs are exceptionally good at observing us and that they uh, follow a certain pattern when they are looking at the human face for example from a Finnish study showing that uh, quite recently they don't do that randomly they're actually following some certain pattern okay so yes in a way we are doing that because when we look at the progression plan for example for tracking and detection it's uh, part of the plan to move your body in a certain way to avoid that from happening. But I also think that I would have done it also if, uh, <laughs> yeah. if, if those studies wouldn't been there. Because it's, like I said, again, it's something that if you have trained many dogs and you've been doing that for a long time, it's no surprise that dogs are exceptionally good at that. Mm-hmm. So I still miss that things that we really didn't know, know anything about. So we don't use the cognition test. I haven't seen it, but I think it's fun to do it. But it shouldn't be a surprise yeah. for anyone who's yeah. trained dogs. Interesting, Tobias, that you were talking about body language. I was watching a series of your videos when Pat was telling me that we were going to do the interview with you. And I've seen your work before. I've watched uh, snippets and clips of uh, videos that you've done in the past. One thing that I really appreciate is how calm you are when you're sending your dogs into work. Like you do very little in the background. And that's where I find, especially in scent detection work, a lot of handlers make errors because they're too involved yeah. in what the dog's doing there. 
you know, as Bart calls it, they do a lot of chicky chicky chugga. And, uh, you know, they're, they're walking around, they're waving their arms, which, you know, you have to move and you have to be present, but you have a very calm demeanor. You let the dog do all the work and you don't indicate to the dog when it's right or wrong based off your body language, which I think is, it's a very masterful skill in itself to be able to have the dog there, be excited about the work it's doing and yet be so nonchalant about it. I'm aware of that. And actually, if you are looking at one study, where they had dogs entering three different rooms. And in one room, a person was petting the dogs. And in one room, they were just talking to them. And in, in another room, they were completely quiet. And it showed that the voice uh, was actually not very important for dogs. They didn't, you know, it was kind of like a background sound. So it didn't matter if the dog, if the person was talking or if it was quiet. Mm-hmm. But petting was something that they really wanted to have. So... When it comes to using my voice, for example, in, in dog training, I always try to use it as little as possible mm-hmm. because I don't want the dogs to get used to having me, you know, uh, using these big gestures and, and voice. Uh, because when I really need it later on and I really want my dog to listen to it, then he's already used to all these things. So I try to use as little as possible because I think it makes the dogs more focused, more easy to communicate with them and everything. And I think a lot of these things, especially when I see people play with dogs, they kind of start up by, you know, doing a lot of things with their arms and running around and using their voice all the time. And I always ask them to look at the difference if they didn't use their voice, if they actually saw any difference in the dog's uh, intensity or, or, or whatever. And most of them, when they try it, they say, no, Actually, I, I, it didn't mean anything. So we do a lot of things without having a plan for it. We just do it because it feels you know, natural to do it. And so for me, that's also in the beginning, many years ago, it was difficult to, for me to, to shut up. But now it's a natural part of, of my training. But it, I don't want any surprises in the dog training. I, I want everything to be 100% planned because I hate trial and error. Uh, I'm always looking for trial and success. And then uh, you have to to uh, to be aware of those things. And that's uh, be calm and all that is part of it. Because later on, I may add these things as distractions or making them bridges or whatever. But if I start up with all that, then I have a, also a problem to actually know which of them actually become signals. For, for things so I like to observe and and try and especially when we are doing detection and tracking I don't want to compete with the things that I want my dog to be interested in uh, mm-hmm. sniffing on the ground or whatever so then I can add those things later on my voice and everything as a planned distraction yeah uh, I find that as well I used to be a, a lot more cheeky cheeky chucker and a lot more vocal and talking to the dog a lot more and then when I I found it was time to layer in commands, the dog had basically my yeah. voice had just become white noise at that point. So I, I make a lot of effort to try and stay as quiet as I can, so that when I do speak, it's novel to the dog yeah. and mm. it has a value. You don't have to shout, you know. You can. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I like I mean, that as well. Silent, like quiet, not quiet commands, but just you know, spoken, just normal yeah. level commands. I don't need to yell at my dog because it, it my voice doesn't have a value other than what I give it. I give it. So if I have to yell, then like it, I give the yelling yeah, a value. And also I think it's, it takes away 
the handlers focus on the situation because they are doing a lot of other things, you know, waving their arms and shouting and everything. And then I always wonder, do they actually look at the dog now or are they just, you know, doing a lot of other shit? <laughs> and, uh, a lot of dancing. So, and also, you can see that this kind of emotional state in the dog training is when they enter a training field or a room or whatever and they are already, you know, excited and start to talk about uh, with their dogs and everything. And then... It only takes one or two times and then the dog goes into the training situation with the same thing and they are already a bit hectic mm-hmm. and uh, that's, uh, you know, that's a big no-no <laughs> having a dog coming in to do a really difficult kind of detection, for example, and mm-hmm. already is panting. So the training attitude is something that I at least focus on a lot that my dogs, when they are entering a training situation, are completely focused on what they are doing i never let them you know be unfocused or or doing other things i don't punish them for doing it but i I never you know let that pass sure and that's really important especially with puppies because you can clearly see that when we start to ask for that focus and that engagement already when they are eight weeks or ten weeks that attitude is what we can clearly see that they bring through the whole career so i don't look at puppy training as puppy training it's the exactly exact same thing we do with the puppies that we do with a a two-year-old dog but if we treat them like puppies and only do very simple and easy things with them when they are puppies and then just all of a sudden when they are one year or one and a half year you start to ask them for to do difficult things it's almost it's like you you train a a big puppy because Mm -hmm. they have been able to do you know to be to not be focused for during the whole puppy trainings we ask for the same thing with puppies but shorter times of course but this is part of it i don't want them to go in there and think it's just you know a handler shouting and screaming and try to be funny i want them to always enter the situation with that focus and then i have to be act the same way in that case we can definitely use the social knowledge about social social learning to take a deep breath and calm down and and you will get the same effect in the dogs. Mm. So that term social learning for our listeners, can you just explain that a little bit? Social learning is something that you can see in all, you know, group living animals that they can learn from each other. And it's not true imitation. That's also one part of social learning, but there are different levels. You can say about social learning, there are social facilitation and you have a true imitation and you have different levels and they doesn't need any reinforcement to work. You're actually doing it just because someone else is doing it. Mm -hmm. You have also stimulus and uh, focusing stimulus enhancement that you can focus on one point in the environment and then other people or dogs will also start to focus on that one. And that's something that you can see in a lot of animals, but what dogs showed in a very special way was that they are able to do this with another species, in this case, humans. And social learning is a resource. You can use it a lot in the dog training to make them curious on things, but it's at the same time, it's a problem if you're not aware of it, mm-hmm. because then you maybe draw away the attention from things just by looking at some point or standing with your upper body in one direction or whatever. So social learning means that you can actually, yeah, you learn from the other. You're doing it because other one's doing it. You don't need reinforcement to do it. So it's a, 
sometimes it can be really difficult to, to differ it from operant conditioning. It's always that it's always difficult because it's always it's just oh, worse. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so social learning means that it can be from the very very simple thing, like I said, looking in one direction and the other one going there, or birds swimming in a sea and one bird is swimming towards some person throwing food in the in the water and the other birds are following that bird that's also social learning but also very advanced things like true imitation that you can actually learn a completely new behavior just by observing someone else doing it and mm. that's a smart type of learning because then you can let the other one doing the mistakes mm. and for a long time we said that dogs are not able to do this but now it's actually shown that social uh, that true imitation is possible and the dogs are not only good at it they are extremely good at it if you look at claudia fugazzi's uh, research for example that's that's a good example of something for me completely overwhelming and new yeah. that can be used in dog training and that's also a type of social learning I know we use that a little so, bit yeah. in the bite work, you know, like bring young puppies in to see older dogs do the bite work. And, and sometimes I've seen puppies that aren't so interested yeah. in maybe the prey isn't there. They're, they're not interested in chasing a rag. But then when they see a, a really nice session yeah. with an older dog, it can bring it alive. Mm. But I've never seen anyone do that in the detection. Have you had any experience with that? Do you train your dogs for detection in front of others? Yeah, and- I, I actually – yeah, I do it with the puppies quite often, actually. We use an older dog. For example, on the brick wall, a dog that has been doing that for, for knows it, and then you can let the puppy uh, just follow him. You've got one. Uh, You've got a video. It can be a very effective way. Of, You've got a video with yeah, uh, a, a Labrador and a little with, Cocker Spaniel. A couple of, yeah. Mm. yeah, with so, a Labrador. Yeah. So you actually let him get involved. So in- you can actually. You, what you're doing also in detection work is that what you do, but sometimes you can do, is that maybe if you're working on the lineup for the first time, well, just by uh, going there, let someone hold the dog and you go and sniff on, on the boxes yourself. That's also social learning. Mm-hmm. So if you do that with the wolf, for example, or another one, they don't care <laughs> because they don't. Uh, but we are so used to it. Mm-hmm. when we are working with dogs or when we have dogs that they are, you know, looking at us all the time and being interested in things that we are interested in. And we take it for granted because it's so natural for us to, because we see it all the time, but it's actually a very, very special thing. It's very powerful. They, it. and they seem to be even better on reading us than we are at reading them. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the other things that you do at Scandinavia Working Dog Institute, but I really am curious about, I've watched so many videos that you put out of getting puppies started and you do kind of an indication on, well, let me go back a step. I think because you sell dogs right to all different kinds of departments to have different end jobs. So you imprint them and teach them to search on the Kong. Is that, is that correct? It, it's not, not always, I would say, because we are, and we are not training very many dogs, but we have, we, we work a lot with special units in, in both police and military mm-hmm. and with some of the units that we are already working with, maybe training their handlers, or, and then sometimes we also train dogs. And then it's uh, the end goal is different. Sometimes it's very uh, special and sometimes it's uh, not very special. But yes, sometimes, not always. It depends on what the dog is supposed to, to do in the, in the end of, of the training. But what we do when we if we take the kong for an example because most of the time we do we do that and it's actually nothing 
it's nothing new and it's nothing special. Uh, it's mine detection dogs have been trained like that for for uh, a long time. What we're doing is that we are using something else than the target odor that makes it possible to train uh, much more mm-hmm. and without having to to handle all the you know explosives and drugs or whatever. Yep. That is actually also based on one thing that studies have shown being a problem, this contextual learning that should be more focused on in detection training, that uh, dogs so quickly learn that this happened in this environment. Mm -hmm. So if you need to train on the target order all the time, then we clearly see that people kind of avoid training in public areas or go to the pizzeria and hide, you know, explosives or drugs or whatever. So they go to their, the same training place or the same places every time. But if you use something else, then like Kong, for example, it's, it's not a problem if you yeah. forget it there at the pizzeria or whatever. It would be a bigger problem if it was TATP. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes it more the handlers train and now you know i train a lot i train hours every day and i i have you know we we have uh, some kind of idea that every time we bring our dogs uh, in the car for example every time i'm i'm out driving i constantly look for new places to train mm-hmm. new environments new surfaces or whatever and if i'm training an explosive detection dogs that wouldn't be possible then I had to carry the explosives in the car every time. So you need to have something else to train on. And Kong happens to be a good thing for that because it's it's a good material. You can cut it into small pieces without you know it falling apart compared to a tennis ball or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we use red Kong, uh, it's easy for most of us like, uh, at least to see quite even if it's quite small pieces but dogs don't see red so you can use it in that's also good in that way you can get it everywhere in the world Mm -hmm. so what we do is do the basic training on kong and when we have done through uh, certain steps then we add the target order and depending on the end goal if it's for example a dog searching on an an airport, for example, then I, I recommend that you don't train on Kong because uh, you always have to look at the consequences of, of an alert. Maybe you have to shut down the whole airport. And if it's a piece of Kong or a Kong, well, then it's a problem. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you're working at an airport, you are probably also searching in the same place all the time. So then you can actually use the contextual learning. Mm-hmm by making the dog extra good at that specific place. But if you are supposed to work with your dog everywhere, well, then you often need something else to train on. I will not go into the pseudo uh, uh, yeah. sense and all that, but because <laughs> that's a discussion. But we, we <laughs> most of the units that we are working with, and, and also here in, in Sweden, they, uh, at least the governmental agencies are not allowed to train on pseudoscience. So it's real scent or, or something right. else. So then you can choose if you train on Kong and you consider it just another target order. So you continue actually to do the training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you train on real material as often as you can. Or if you stop and then uh, only switch to target orders. But it makes it possible and it's easy to handle. So, so that's the reason. We don't always do it. So my question then, knowing what you just explained then, that it's just an easy material to use, 
Have you adapted your training? Because I noticed the way that you sort of start your puppies is with a, an indication on the direct reward. So you're actually holding the Kong and you sort of not lure, but bring on a, a sit and an indication very, very early. And then the dog gets it from it in your hand. And then you transition that to becoming the search for what is no longer in your hand, but is somewhere else. Is it a chicken or the egg thing? Did you start doing that because you were using Kongs or were you doing that in some other way and now you use the Kong? Well, the whole idea by, with back chaining, it's, it's kind of, it's nothing new. That's not a new thing. Everyone knowing about learning theory knows that the back chaining is not always, but very often a good way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And, and detection and tracking are chains of behavior. And, and then it, it's natural to start with the end behavior. But what we have seen is that a lot of the things that at least the dog teams that we are working with looking for are highly dangerous mm-hmm. and also unstable. So that's the, especially when it comes to homemade explosive. So you just have to have a rock solid indication. Mm-hmm. And that means that you cannot afford to have a half trained indication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that comes natural from the people that we are working with, that we have to think in that way. When you're working with the target order immediately, then it's more difficult to do that. Yeah. But when you're doing uh, using something else, when you're using a, to- uh, a con, it's possible to do it. And, and the result is also better because as soon as you have the dog on a distance, if, even if it's only two meter or three meter away from you and the indication is not fully trained, the dog will have the time to turn around or whatever. And then you reward and then you have rewarded the whole chain. And then again, you can use the knowledge about social learning and the dog's uh, expectations on, on humans that it takes one repetition and then the dog starts to search for the closest human <laughs> to get some help. Yeah. So uh, it's, uh, and then you will in two repetitions be part of what's signaling the reward, uh, the indication. And in this case, we want the target odor or the odor to be the signal for the indication and nothing else. Mm-hmm. So then it makes total sense using the Kong. And first, it's just by creating some kind of muscle memory, doing this, this uh, you know, repetition all over again, many, many repetitions to have the sit automatically. And then it's easy to transfer it over to start to hide the Kong. From that point, when we start to hide the Kong, then we are also using clean boiled pieces of Kong or, and uh, tweezers and plastic gloves. But in the beginning, it's, uh, we treat it just like a toy. And... Before that, we uh, do a lot of developing motivation for the Kong or, or the toy or whatever, to give the dog a reason to actually stare at that mm-hmm. Kong. So uh, the first thing we do with puppies, but also older dogs, is to, to make them crazy about the toy. But even if they are crazy about the toy, we always start with food. Okay. When we do this, moving the, the hand, we do it with food first. Because that's one thing that we... We also try to, to, to tell people a lot about this, that even if you, know, if you, if you use, use these strong rewards, they have, have the exact same effect as strong punishments, mm-hmm. in, uh, that they cause this shock effect and, and it, they never learn. It feels like you have to start over again. So the problem with stress, in my, from my point of view, when, when I look at dogs, stress in training is not that they are using too 
strong rewards, but that they are using it too early in the mm, training. Right. Because for, first we want the dog to be to understand uh, and be aware of what they are doing, and then it's easier to keep it on a low stress level with food. And then when they know what they are doing, then it's not a problem to use uh, higher level stuff, Kong or whatever, even if they are. Totally crazy about it because they cannot be too motivated. Tobias, just based on what you're talking about, what is your selection criteria for a successful dog? That's something that I ask myself every day. (laughs) (laughs) And it's changing. I've stopped looking for the perfect dog, but what I'm looking for is to try the best I can to find the perfect way of training each and every dog. But I think, and I actually think more and more for every dog that I, that I train that it's up to you. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. you know, you can, you, I have had dogs that I didn't think much of, uh, and they ended up being really good. And some dogs that I thought were, were supposed to be really good, they didn't end up that good. And at the same time, I see that the more dogs I train, the more dogs I think I, it goes quicker and better. And uh, we wash out very few dogs now. And I think that doesn't mean that we have found better dogs, but we, that we have been better on training them, I hope, mm-hmm. at least. So I'm a bit tired of people talking about, you know, the dog's personality and trying to find excuses all the time because... If you have a dog and then you you cannot do anything about the personality or mentality or whatever, but the only thing that you can actually do something about is your training. Mm-hmm. And I think it's better to see it as a challenge to, you know, uh, at least that's something that I I got, I guess, from my my background that you, you get the dog you, you get and then you try to do as the best you can. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it doesn't get very <laughs> good, but at least you learn something during the way. So I... I really don't like that, you know, uh, when I see people try to find bad things with their dogs to give them an excuse to, to change dog. I, I really don't like that. That's one of my problems with aptitude tests that I think it's uh, it's a problem. Or, or I, don't, I don't like when you are looking for bad things in dogs, personality or mentality, because I see too many dog handlers talking about those things for the rest of the dog's life. So I think the best test is to find, you know, things that you can build on, look for qualities, and then I prefer that. And I think it's also in a in another way, you can see sometimes that people are disappointed by the result of a test, for example, and then that disappointment follows them through the training, mm-hmm. and they look kind of, you know, frustrated as soon as they get their dogs out of of the car and started training and they are looking constantly di- disappointed so i prefer not having it the best test i think is to the selection is to start the training and see if you're getting somewhere and uh, always aim for being better and better so i i have really i was if you asked me 10 years ago i would probably say that this is what i'm looking for this is the perfect dog but now we get so many dogs that i have to to change that uh, <laughs> view because a test of a dog is not interesting until you are testing it together with the person who is training it. Mm-hmm. Because it's the dynamic that it will actually the important thing. Even if you have the best dog, objectively, you know, a good dog, but still 
and you put a handler there or a trainer and maybe he's used to one type of dog and then it doesn't matter if you have the best dog in the world. Yeah. yeah so, right. um, and that's one thing that recent studies actually showed. And that was a Swedish uh, study I, I read about from uh, where they were looking more into personality tests that tests that were done without the handler or the owner were not very interesting because that's not the situation where someone ever will see because what is interesting is to see how the dog reacts together with the person who is he's actually living with mm-hmm. and it's the same with training to just look at the dog in an aptitude test you know doesn't tell me anything actually yeah you're sort of observing yeah. it in a vacuum right mm. that's not not realistic yeah no and i think it's uh, the effects or the consequences of, of that is a problem also because that makes you think that you cannot change anything. Mm-hmm. So this is the dog, you know? And uh, I think a better way of doing it is that you have people. There are some, I, I like um, one way, I have friends in, in Canada, I think you know him too, uh, Mark LaPointe. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, we know Mark, yeah. yeah. And I've been working a lot with them in, in uh, the OPP. And they are a good example. There are other uh, similar examples, but I think they, they are good in the way they are doing it, that they have some uh, very experienced trainers and instructors, and also they are the ones selecting the dogs, and they are the ones to also do the basic training before the dog handlers start their course. Mm-hmm. That is actually also a very long course. So they show clearly that they uh, think that training education is important. But when you have selected the dogs and you have also trained them, you have First of all, you want the dog to succeed because you have spent a lot of time and you have done the selection. And when you have also done the basic training, you know the dog. You know a lot of the dog, much more than you would know if you're just testing it for 40 minutes or one hour or whatever. But if you train the dog and then you hand it over to to a handler, you can give him a lot of advice about based on what you know about the dog. And you see that in systems like that, they wash out very few dogs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm compared to when you have a standardized test for one hour, three gurus, you know, have never met this dog, but know everything about him yeah. in one hour. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that because then you are looking for, oh, he has some trouble in that uh, situation or in that environment. And then you, that's what the handler will remember also yeah. uh, later on. I prefer to set up a standardized training program you can do that in, I rarely have a dog more than two weeks for selection. So then you can standardize the training program and then uh, then you can compare the dogs. Yeah. If they're doing the same thing and then you can see if, you know, because some sometimes you see a dog that gives a really, really good, do a really good test and then another one didn't impress you. But then if you put them in training, you can see maybe the the, the dog that didn't impress you had this progression and the other one didn't progress at all so i think the best way of selecting dogs is to see how they receive the training and then you start to see when you train many many dogs like we do that you see some things that you didn't expect so for example we do a lot of chain pulling with our dogs okay pulling chains for you know when when we are out walking then you get the Mm -hmm. like strength uh, and conditioning work 
Yeah, and you get uh, also uh, a lot of extra training during a walk only. Mm-hmm. But then we also combine it with nose work and tracking and all that so to make them, uh, especially if they are supposed to work in hot, warm countries. Or mm-hmm. So we have to prepare them in that way and to make them use the right technique even though they are physically tired. Mm-hmm. But what I've seen there is that dogs that show, because in the beginning you put a lot of weight, not a lot of weight, but some weight on them, you can see that they are, some are very uh, disturbed by, by that. And some dogs, they don't care. Mm-hmm. And I have seen that attitude is something that we can also see in the training later on, especially when we look at hard surface tracking, for example, that when things get tough and it, it gets, uh, you know, they need to concentrate and focus and then they can put in that extra yeah, and we can see it only on during walk that they it's difficult to measure but it's something that i i think i see in the dogs that you didn't expect that you could see see some qualities in that situation mm-hmm. uh, and also if you compare you need to know a lot about the background and the training training history when you select the dog also so that's why we really prefer to train them from puppies mm-hmm. because if they have been treated like puppies or you know, uh, not trained at all. And then you get the dog when many people want them when they are one and a half year or two year or whatever to start training. And they can, they have the ability to focus for two seconds and then they are, you know, completely tired just by being trained. So then I know that, okay, this one I have to treat like a puppy for probably six months to make anything good out of this one. And then it doesn't matter how much he barks or play tug of war or whatever in the test situation, because the most important quality is how he can handle training and how he can handle hard training and how he can focus and how he reacts when he gets tired and if he have that extra gear. And that is, from our point of view, something that you create yeah. from by asking them to actually uh, or asking them, but you you teach them that it always pays off to be focused and to always try to to do as be- the best you can. Yeah, so that's Even what I was going to ask. Weeks. In your dragging the chains, the perseverance that you build, say in that, say you get a dog that's really not into it and sees the chain mm. as a back tie and doesn't want to pull it, and if you motivate and encourage him through and build some perseverance there. Do you see that carry over into the scent work where he then gets a little better from that by accident almost? Or there's no, I had some, some, and I see it more in, in tracking. Uh, I have, for example, now I have a Malinois that has been, we haven't had him for a long time, and he's a very talented tracking dog. But the problem with him is that he sometimes he, he it looks like he just don't want to <laughs> to do it. <laughs> you can see that he loses some some attitude and intensity, and he's looking for excuses to do other things. And he's a talent. He's really good, but he doesn't have that. Uh, he's lazy. Mm-hmm. And you can see it in in the pulling pulling the chains. Also, he always looks like, oh fuck, we're going to do this again. Uh-huh. And he's muscular and he's strong. You know everything. And then you have a little, you know, male, female, or uh, cocker spaniel, and whatever, and they can be, not all of them, but you know, yeah, a few examples that they are acting the exact same, different, opposite way. So they just try as much as they can, and that's exactly the thing you want to see also in in hard surface tracking, for example. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think I see the connection and. I don't know, actually, if you, and I guess you can get some, but it's difficult to say if it's the physical condition that has 
improved and that makes it sure. better. But I can now immediately see when I put the chains, uh, chains on and the harness and you can see that you know that they have never done it before. The first attitude that they just go. Mm-hmm. And uh, then that's for me now. It's like, yeah, this is good. <laughs> and I know this will uh, be fun. This will be a fun dog to train. That's an interesting test that I've never heard of anybody put those two links together. No. I know a lot of people that do drag work mm. and scent work, but I've never heard anybody put those together. And I know, I know some people that are going to be very happy to hear that. Mm. Are going to feel yeah, elated. but you know, a grit, the term grit. Yeah, grit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. like toughness. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's actually what we we see. Mm-hmm. That they are tired as hell, but they are just doing, it. and not all people have it. But the dogs that we are training should be the same type of personality or dogs because they are doing, you know, some things that takes grit yeah. to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess some so people with dogs might call that gameness, qualities. right? Gameness, yeah. like a willingness to yeah. continue despite knowing you can't win. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then uh, I think that that's what we, we need to look for in, in the dogs. And it has nothing to do with techniques or, or whatever. It's something else and the closest i've been to see that is is through the you know pulling chains and and you see it when you start to add some extra weight that it's too much but they just want to yeah Yeah. and they do it with some kind of attitude also and not only you know okay i have to do this but they they don't give a fuck and they just do it and then i know that this dog is will probably show the same in, in the other training so tobias you've talked a lot about the successes and and working with a dog throughout and improving your own training to try and create a better dog holistically. So using that term holistically, when do you consider enough is enough? There's no point in continuing with this dog any further. I think that when we have a puppy, I think that we have actually succeeded with all of them that we have had the the, uh, recent years. If you have done some, if you have some knowledge about the, because if you have a puppy, you know, probably something about the breeding lines and all that. So then you have already done some kind of selection. And when you have Mm -hmm. done that, you should be able to do something about it. When there are older dogs, we have some examples that they have been put into a type of training that is the complete opposite to what we would do. And then if I try to do that within two weeks to see if they uh, improve in a way that I think is okay, so within two weeks, but what we are doing there is we train, train every day, uh, two or three sessions every day to see if they have what we need. And some dogs, they, uh, you can use the best type of reward. You can use, you know, anything and they have the ability and the technique, but they don't, they don't think it's worth it when you go to, for example, smaller amount of cents mm-hmm. or when you do we see the same i think at least i see the same thing when we go down to micro pieces in in kong that they uh, start to be more intense or some dogs they just uh, you see that they're starting to look for other things to do and the same in hard surface tracking so during that test period we try to go to smaller amount of cents as quick as possible to see if they um, show the right intensity and the right attitude but when we train puppies i think that we can always get that if we have done some kind of like selection in the breathing lines mm-hmm. and it's difficult when you have a puppy to say where when you should stop you know 
then I, I think it's difficult because it goes also in, you can normally, you can train a puppy really hard from eight weeks up to around five months. Then they start normally to come into a period where you should almost stop the training because otherwise you can get some real problems because then they are starting to be a bit, it looks like they have not never done the indication before, for mm -hmm. example. And then, but then it's not a problem because then we can easily pick up the training again in a couple of months uh, and train hard again because then we have already done it. So from eight weeks up to that time, I think it's difficult to tell when you should, should stop. But otherwise, if it's an older dog, I, I, I don't want to, to uh, let the owner of the dog wait for more than two weeks. I've, sometimes I hear you know, agencies asking for three months to test the dog. And I don't, you know, what could possibly, yeah. why would you need three months? And especially if you, if you leave a dog with someone, someone for three months, you have actually the time to actually change the dog. And, and if they come after three months and say that we want to give it back, then I would be quite pissed off. Yeah. So uh, two weeks, is, I think is enough. Yeah, I agree with that. Mate, one thing I wanted to ask you about as well, being in Sweden and the sort of animal welfare laws that you have there, am I wrong in saying that it is quite restrictive? You're not allowed to use any tools there, no prong collars, no e-collars. And has that, has that been a pressure that's adapted your training? Like, has that been a pressure for you that has made you do things that um, pushed you forward perhaps in a way that you might not have if you could have relied on those tools? I think it's for us. It's not really a discussion because it's it's always been like that. So it, it's right. not. It, I I don't I I don't know if it's ever been allowed to use it. And but the problem is that this is not very popular. If I say it in some communities in in, in Sweden that that have caused an attitude. I can see it clearly in some cases that we think that we are the best in the world in everything, just uh, and that we have the best uh, way of treating the dogs and all that. And I've been working in more than 20 countries and I can clearly say that it, that's not true because just because we have banned, uh, you know, e-collars and uh, prong collars, you know, you can, you can do harm to a dog in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, mm. So, uh, I think it's, it doesn't mean that we have, uh, I think that we're treating dogs good in, in training in Sweden, but I mean that that doesn't mean that we are, everything else that we are doing is perfect. Mm -hmm. So uh, I see a lot of, you know, pulling the leash hard and, you know, uh, doing a lot of things that probably wouldn't have been needed to do if you could have used some, some other colors or tools or whatever. But the problem is that we don't have the tradition or the problem, but I know if all of a sudden they would, allow it then i don't think that would be a bigger problem because no one knows how to use it in a, in a good yeah. way so i don't think that we should should uh, allow it but it it hasn't created automatically a better way of, of training dogs you know the ethics are not better than anywhere else i would say mm -hmm. i think abusive animals really bad of... ways of using it and really good ways of using it yeah I think abuse of mm -hmm. animals happens in the heart and the mind of the yep, abuser, 100%. not with the tool that he may use. Because at the end of the day, like I can abuse an animal with food by giving too much and by giving too little. In yeah. the same way, I can I can do that with any tool or, or with negative punishment. You can abuse a dog clearly. Yeah, and that's what I used to talk about. Also, that the what is interesting is not the tool that you're using or even your purpose with mm -hmm. your training, but it's it's the way 
it's the experience within within the the dog how does he does he understand why he's getting this but that means that even if you have a completely positive way of training dogs you can still probably if you measured the stress levels see have really problems to seeing whether a dog is put in in some punishment training or or bad positive training because you want to know what you're doing wrong Mm -hmm. and Dogs also want to do that, but there are different ways of doing it. Mm. I mean, you can use an e-collar, you can kick the dog in in the head, you can say no, you can say whatever. That specific tool or way that you're doing it will not be the thing that decides whether the dog gets stressed or not. It's if the dog understands why. Yeah, yep. Control. The control. I can... Really recommend reading about wise rats uh, when they had this serial cop, this uh, rats, three rats getting an uh, electrical electrical shock, and they, then they were measuring the size of the ulcers. And uh, the first rat didn't get any signal before the electrical shock, and the other one got the signal before the the shock, and the the third one uh, also had the possibility to to push a liver, and then he could. Uh, avoid the electrical shock and there were big differences in the stress levels and the size of the ulcers showing that uh, the strength of the punishment or the aversive is not what decides if the animal gets stressed but if if he understands and if it's if it's predictable uh, and if uh, he has the ability to control the situation Mm -hmm. so even though they were receiving the same uh, electrical shock, their bodies, their physi- physiologically reacted in completely different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's what people sometimes miss is that it punishment or, or pressure in the training like that can be fine. So long as it's understood clearly and the, the animal knows why it's happening and knows what he can do to avoid it in the mm-hmm. future, then you're never going to run into yeah. an issue entirely. Yeah. Yeah. But there is also another problem that I think is uh, always a risk when you are using also when you're using any kind of punishment, even if you're using your voice or whatever. And that is also always the secondary effect within the handler that, you, you know, you, you will get rid of that, what irritates you or whatever in, in that uh, specific moment. So it will be rewarding for the handler to use this punishment. And yeah. that can be a problem if you get emotional, but that's connected to the planning. So, mm-hmm. The planning is the key, I think, to always know what you're going to do. And if you are using punishments, that should be part of the planning and nothing that happens just because you get pissed off Yeah. because the training didn't, you know, ended up the way you wanted it. But if you plan that in this situation, it would probably be best to use a positive punishment. Well, then that should be part of your training plan. Mm-hmm. Nothing that just happens. Yeah. That's really sage advice. Mm. So we've been talking a little bit, or oh, almost entirely, about the detection stuff that you guys do. What else do you do there at the Working Dog Institute? We do almost uh, any kind of training uh, from well, we have recently uh, my colleague trained an attack dog for an intervention unit. We do we have tracking courses and we train uh, remote detection. It's a lot of things right now, uh, focus right now, where we connect radio guidance with detection, but also 
obedience now we have a, the next course we will have is an obedience course for an international for also for special operation forces from different countries where they're with their specific needs but it's all based on the same principles we are sharing new knowledge or new um, scientific studies that's also one natural part of, of our courses that we all always try to give a, a view on what's happened in the science of, of dogs but also the big thing is to try and make people be good in, in training, in doing progression plans to, mm -hmm. to actually construct theoretical training plans and, and follow them and evaluate them. And because especially when we are working with special units, they often have a time limit. They have to do things very quick yeah. and they can have to change things. I know that you know this, have to change things very quick. And uh, then the planning is the most important thing yeah. of all. So that's what we do in the in the courses. So we have courses in our training facility for professional handlers in detection. And sometimes it's very specific, but we also have tracking courses. And also during our international camps, it can be everything from bite work to, to obedience to anything. And then we, um, we also have some long-term programs with different units where we are working very close with the handlers for a long time. Uh, some of them we have been working for in several years. And then we travel a lot to do the same thing, but on, on other places in the world. Our main thing is to train. Mm -hmm. uh, that's extremely important to train all the time because that's the only way for us to develop and to create new plans. So we regularly have meetings where we with my colleagues where we share that uh, I discovered this this week that we could take this step away from the progression plan and add this instead and then we try to update them all the time the plans for everything and uh, the only way to do that is to not only train one dog but to actually train several dogs yeah. and what I think is the most fun part of it is to train different breeds also I've been a Malinois person for a long time and I still am now I train labs and cocker spaniels and spring spaniels and everything and that's what I will continue to do and what we will continue to do because that affects everything else that we do mm -hmm. and uh, I think there are too many people that are giving courses and, and things and uh, they clearly haven't trained enough dogs mm -hmm. and uh, that would be a I think it's it's a problem many times because you know if I am away for work for a week or two weeks and I got get back and start to train dogs again, I can feel that I I'm you know missed one or two weeks of mechanical uh, training and that's uh, I noticed in the training the first sessions. So imagine what would happen if I only had one dog, or if I. Uh, don't, I know some instructors say that I don't have a dog because I don't have the time. I have to have courses for, for people. And, and then mm, I should be a little bit skeptical because I think, I think it's something that you need to do constantly. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a battle keeping that skill set fresh, right? Yeah. Hey, uh, Tobias, yes. just yes. on your website, you've got a lot of little snippets of YouTube clips that you've filmed along the way, which anybody who's listening to this interview should go and have a look at. And one of the ones in particular I really liked is the Malinois that you're doing the scent detection work with, where you've got him out in the field. And I'm assuming it's the same dog, but he's a, he's doing field work. He's doing work on the bricks. He's doing work with one of your colleagues where he's detecting live on a person in the surrender position, etc. One of the things I loved about that dog, well, there's two things. 
One is how audible his detection work is. Like he's really using his nose and you can hear it way back from where the camera is. The other thing I loved about him too was his indication, even though he's sitting and indicating, the one thing that I really loved about that dog was how far back he pinned his ears waiting for his reward marker. That was incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the transitions <laughs> are, are an important part of of all of that training uh, to do also a lot of long sessions mm. to uh, and go from one thing to another. That's important also for the people that we are working with because that's what will happen. That's the real thing. Yep. In real scenarios. I think it's also important to, because there are no secrets in dog training, actually, even if you're working with special forces or special units within police, that the practical training is not, there are no secrets, even though people like to say so because they don't want to show their training. Mm -hmm. There are secrets in the tactics and and things like that. And what kind of odor you're training on that can maybe be be secret and you don't have to share that. But I think that people should share and show their training constantly. And we try actually to give away as much as possible everything. If someone asks if they can get this or that, you know, help with, with this kind of training, we try to describe everything, what we are doing, because we know that one day we we like to have good ideas on how to train something else. And that's the best way of knowing that you will get things back. Mm-hmm. And we have a very big network just because we we share and they share. Yeah, because, it raises uh, the bar. Yeah, we try to do that as much as possible. I think it's the most fun thing because we really get a lot back when we do that. And, well, uh, I mean, that's how, that's how we're having this conversation, right? Like the content that you put up, like I say, I get really... I get enamored by it. Whenever I see those videos come up, I'm like, oh my God. Mm. And and it's it's very beautiful to watch the training that you do, especially with the, the Cocker Spaniel that I think you have at the moment. Is he Stevie or something? Is that his name? Yeah. Um, really? Yeah. It was an accident. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> was uh, Yeah, it wasn't planned. We had a Cocker Spaniel that we trained for the Dutch police and then a Springer Spaniel and they accidentally met. So we, got, <laughs> we, we, not, we, we figured it out only two weeks before. So... That was not planned. Yeah, but it's fun. But yeah, it's great to watch. And there's, like, as you say, it's all laid out there. You can see the training. You you put up enough content that I can see most of your progression all, like, right there. I can see what you're doing. It's artistic. Um, It's art. art. And it's beautiful. Mm. But we won't take up too much more of your time. Where can people get a hold of you and uh, what events have you got coming up that people can go to? I think the easiest way is to look at our Facebook page. We are constantly traveling uh, all the time but so i don't have all the dates available but they way we will uh, publish it there but our facebook page swdi scandinavian working dog institute there we try to update almost every day with our training and try to show how we do things and and that can be everything from detection to bite work to tracking or whatever it depends on what kind of dogs we have at the moment they are mm-hmm. training and um we try to uh, now the last last month we have had a little too little time, but we try also to to describe why we are doing things and in the text to the film clip. Yep. Uh, so that's I, I think the easiest way to get some info. And we also have a website swdi.se, but there is not uh, there you have the information about our courses and things like that, and also our email addresses. But otherwise, our Facebook page is quite active. 
Awesome. Mm. Mate, thank you so much for making the time. It's been a real honor to talk to you. And again, just love watching the content that you put out. Thanks. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you an extra episode there, or you could jump onto our Teespring and buy some cool merch, and that helps support us too. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way is usually to just post something in the discussion group if you have specific questions, or you could shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. And that's it. Glenn, music.